Okay. Okay, it's another month that must be... You know what we need here, by the way. It's so bland. It would not have that music to kick this off. We need Spirit of the Game music. What should it be? That's a good question. I don't know. Like a little heavy metal, maybe? I don't know. A little it could uh, depend orchestra on quartet? I don't know. It just know. depends on the subject. The, the subject? Yeah. Okay, well, we need to upgrade. So we'll get, we'll get our man behind the curtain here and tell on that. So it's August 1. We're back for another issue, uh, another episode of Spirit of the Game, our Rules of Golf podcast. This is Ed May. And Lewis Harry. And uh, Lewis, if he's sounding a little bit tired, he's got a good reason. He is coming off of a pretty good run here. Congratulations on an amazing state amateur, the 87th running. Yeah. And a new champion just wrapped up yesterday. Yeah. New venue, everything. It was kind of an experimental championship a little bit for us. It was... Of course, it just had been open for a little over a year. Never hosted an event to this size. Uh, never played State Am to the yardage we played, as far as I know. I don't think we've ever played. By the way, the venue was? Rain Dance National. Yeah. Up in Windsor. The, yeah. Uh, Fred Funk and Harrison Minshew design. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we've ever played State Am or past 7,700 yards. I'd say probably not, probably because there's not there's four courses that have that kind of yardage. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, 7760 was our yardage for the championship, wow. or roughly each day, about 7750, 7760. Uh, 400 par one. 400 par one. 11 over was the cut. As compared to last year, we're 24 under par one or something and, crazy. And even par was the cut last yeah, year. So, yeah, yeah quite, a, quite a difference. In the, in well, the what, a, years. what an amazing, uh, it was great. I got up there just to see the very end, the last nine, and uh, well done. Really, really well done. Tough walking course. It is. It's a, yeah. it's a property where it's not, I, and some people will argue differently. And I'm sure if you have, ask Fred and the rain dance people, they'll, they'll say differently, but. Yeah. I don't think it was a course meant for a walking championship in mind for what right. they were building. Right. But, but that, that said, we, you know, it wasn't impossible and we yeah. got it done. And a lot of shuttles. Or a few shuttles, anyway. A few shuttles yeah. and some spotters and some yeah. some well-marked penalty areas. We kind of managed to help people get around in a, in a decent amount of time. Yeah. Well, well, good job. Okay, so the topic for this month, the men's majors are in the books. Um, so I thought we'd reflect on some high points, some things that occurred um, in those majors um, that uh, stood out, <clears throat> excuse me, from a rules perspective. So um, the first one on our list is the Masters. We'll take these in order. And these are kind of like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Um, so interestingly enough, we had we have four rules to talk about, but only two players. So the first two involve Brooks Kepka, and that's from the Masters and the PGA the last two involved Rory McIlroy, the U.S. Open, and the Open Championship. So let's start with the Masters, way back in April. This was round one, hole 15, and uh, the brouhaha was uh, involving the signaling, potentially, or the at least appearance that Gary, uh, or that Brooks Kepka signaled to Gary Woodland that he hit a uh, five iron into the 15th hole, which violates Rule 10.2a. Um, full disclosure, I did have to ask Lewis what numbers these rules are because I don't know the numbers. I couldn't even tell you what rule one is. <laughs> I can tell you that, let's see. If, I, I if, used you, to if you thought really hard, you could figure out what rule yeah, one is. Probably. It's pretty easy. The game. Yeah, the game. Okay. The player All right. and player conduct. Okay, so 10.2a, and uh, certainly it appeared, is this, the old saying, avoid the appearance of evil, that he definitely signaled to Gary Woodland in his or, and or his caddy that he had a 5 or why he would want to do that, 
I have, I really is kind of, I doubt it, as highly competitive as Brooks Kepka is. Why would he want to help Gary Woodland? Some argue that this happens all the time. It's round one. You know, hey, do me a favor. Kind of goes on. I'm sure it does. I'm sure there's a little bit of that going on. They're, we're only human. But um, talk a, a little bit about why that rule exists, the reason for the rule, um, and how the committee ruled. Well, with the advice rule, it's it's kind of goes back to one of our, our key I wouldn't say one of the principles of the rules because those are it's included in there, but it, the game is the game of golf is a it's supposed to be a challenge that the player is doing by themselves. It's a challenging game and it's something that you're, the player's making strokes by themselves. They're expected to make, you know, with the help of a caddy sometimes with decisions by themselves and, and get around the golf course, you know, with their own skill and ability. And the reason we have an advice rule is a player's only allowed so much outside help. And usually all that is encompassed from their caddy and their caddy alone. In partner forms of play, four ball and foursomes, maybe their partner or their partner's caddy is involved in that. As David Stabler likes to say, they're, they're affiliates. But other than that, when you have advice, it's only supposed to come from one place. And, and players soliciting advice from other players or players giving advice to other players, the, the rules of golf are, are, are going to tell you that's not something that's going to be okay. Right. So the, with that ad, advice rule, it's one of the rules that's in, what we call an intent-based rule. And there's a lot of rules in rules 1 through 25 that are intent-based rules. The player needs intent for there to be a breach or a penalty applied to that situation. And with advice, it really comes down to, and most of the time, I'll say it's most of the time of verbal advice. And sometimes in this case, it's, you know, a signal or something that, you know, you didn't necessarily say something. But most of the time, we're talking about verbal advice. It really comes down to the why. Mm -hmm. Why were you asking or why were you telling or why were you doing this? And that's really the basis of whether there's a breach or not. Right. Well, you know, this is a topic that we've talked about a lot at, uh, among rules geeks. When we used to have our rules advisory group. Uh, that we meet annually to talk about situations that came up over the course of the year that were kind of uh, worthy of some discussion. I would kind of, I had a standard line that I'll know it when I see it as a spirit of the gamer. I'll know it when I see it. Is that advice? Because um, it is, it's very subjective, you know, and, and it, it's, it's a difficult one to decipher and adjudicate because, um, you know, it's, it's hard to stare into the soul of somebody and see what their intent was. The physicality, a word I hate, by the way, uh, piece um, really does draw a, dif- a distinctive line in the sand and the example that uh, always has stuck with me is the scenario where you and I are on the tee and I anything I glean through observation is okay but if I do a physical act to gather information um, then it's a problem so I'm, we're on the tee and I stare into your bag and see the five irons missing okay but I stare into your bag, wonder what's missing, move a towel to see the full set of clubs. Now I've got a problem. So that was one where the advice line is clearly crossed. I'll tell you what, we're, we must be on the same, the same wavelength today because right before you started talking about that, the scenario I had in my head was about a towel laying on a bag, yeah. the player going out there and moving the towel to see what club is missing. So. Well, and the similarity here to Brooks is he it was a physical gesture. Right? It was a signaling with the hand to another player. So anyway, ultimately... The Masters decided no penalty. Uh, Brooks went on to finish tied for second. Um, again, I, you know, the appearance on the 
The other part of that that's always a problem is when you look at something on television, you often are getting, um, you know, a skewed angle. Um, you don't know. Maybe he was signaling to, they, they have spotters out there uh, working for television, and they have a very, I've been inside the ropes to see that go on, and the players and caddies signal to the spotters. Maybe he was signaling to the spotter, and it just so happened that that long view of the camera, who knows? But I think it's easy to jump to conclusions, and we'll see later when we get to, through this. There was a lot of jump. You know, that's one of the things about being, you know, broadcast on TV. You see a lot of people making interpretations that aren't always accurate. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to the PGA. Also, uh, held at Oak Hill. Um, this one also in, involved Brooks Koepka. This time he won the tournament. Um, by the way, pretty amazing. You think about Brooks Koepka. I mean, this is a guy that we thought was done. Maybe he's like he cashed in and. Boy, I'd say he's got a lot more gas in the tank. So as fans of golf, whether you like him or not, he was a big part of the majors this year, for sure. But this one was final round, hole six. Um, hit his ball to the right. It crossed uh, a penalty area more than once, I believe, from where it crossed. And that often happens. when Balls will cross and recross, depending on angles and geometry of the hole. And uh, it led to a discussion about where did the ball, rule 17.1, there again, Sounding like Lewis here, quoting rule numbers. Um, but that's the rule that tells us how to proceed when you ball, hit your ball into a penalty area. So this is worthy of some discussion, in my view, because it's just such an often violated rule. And like the one we just talked about, there's a lot of subjectivity of where did that last cross. And I think it's, uh, in this case, um, it could have been a real train wreck hole for him. Um, he ended up saving a bogey, um, was all great players do. They, they minimize their damage and major championships and avoid those doubles. Uh, but anyway, the upshot of this one from a rules perspective was he got the spot right and they used television and other information to gather, which we don't have the luxury of in casual or, you know, we're even in our state and we're going to have to take people's word for it. So what is your sort of uh, thoughts around this particular rule? So if there's any tournament players listening to this, maybe there's one of you, I don't know if they're... Yeah. I think there's two. You've played the tournament. I played the tournament. Sure. Right. You're excluding the excluding present company. Excluding. <laughs> it, yeah. It's, it, if people would learn these couple pieces regarding these situations, it would save me a ton of questions running CGA tournaments because this comes up quite often running our CGA championships and qualifiers, USGA events. There's two things I want to talk about. There. So there's two pieces with ball in the penalty area that people need to understand. And there's one big misconception that I want to address with ball in the penalty area. The two pieces of that rule that people, if they learn these concepts, they'll more often than not get it right, is the concept of known or virtual certainty that the ball is in the penalty area or that it crossed into the penalty area. So that's the first piece. You either have to have knowledge that the ball's in the penalty area or you have to be virtually certain Balls in the penalty area. And the easy way to figure out virtual certainty is 19 times out of 20 is that ball at in is that ball in location X and can be nowhere else. Well, if you can meet that standard, then you got virtual certainty. So that's the first piece of it. Did you just randomly pick 19 out of 20, or is that actually a clarification? Well, the, 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 to meet the, the definition of virtual certainty, it has to be 95% likely. Oh, okay. 19, okay. 19 out of 20. Okay. Well, thank you for that clarification. So, anyways, the other piece of it is 
there are certain situations in the rules where we're going to accept what's called a player's reasonable judgment. And the times we use reasonable judgment are to determine either the spot of a ball to be replaced, the spot of the location where we're determining a reference point, that with all the available information that we have or all the facts that the player can gather in that time, if they use all that information and they use their reasonable judgment to try and get it right to the best of their ability, then the rules are going to accept that that's correct based on what they're trying to do. So even if it's discovered later that they got it wrong or it was supposed to be four inches to the right or the left, as long as we were operating with that reasonable judgment and using all the available information to us, we're gonna, the rules are going to treat as if we had it right. And with players trying to figure out where they cross the penalty area, and again, sorry, I know I'm going, this is, we're going down, a, trying to leave breadcrumbs back to our penalty area here, but if a player is using that reasonable judgment and they have knowledge that the ball is in there and they know it crossed the penalty area somewhere, they're using all of the information available to them. Maybe a player saw it go here by this stake, or it was going on a line from the tee to this tree on the other side of the penalty area. They're using all of that available information, and they're using that best estimate, reasonable judgment to try and determine that spot. Then even if it's a few inches off you know, to either side and it actually was here or there, then we're going to treat it as if the player got that spot right. And it's, it's kind of the same thing here with, with Brooks Koepka. They have the luxury of TV on the tour or the men or the USGA PGA of America. They have the luxury of replay and going back to watching what actually happened for general play or for, you know, at our level or, you know, something else like that. We're just going to have to use the player's reasonable judgment to determine where that spot or where that reference point is. So that's right. That's the, the first half of the coin. The second half of the coin of this is a misconception that, players think they have to get their other players in their groups approval on where a ball crossed the penalty area. I see nine and a half times out of 10 when I'm helping a group with a penalty area situation, the player I'm helping right before dropping or right before starting to measure their relief area will look to the other players in their group and say, hey, do you guys agree with this? Are you guys good with this? There's no requirements in this rule that you need to get your other players' approval. This is your ball in the penalty area. This is your rule situation. You're the one that's going to need to make the judgment. You're the one that's measuring the relief area. This is you and you only in this this scenario. Now, again, the other players might have information to add so so we can use that information to get the reasonable judgment right. Again, players can add that information. Their other players might be able to steer them in the right direction. But the, the, the... idea out there that you have to get your other players approval or you know you need like almost you know you're signing a scorecard you need two signatures you need two players to agree on a spot there's no requirement in this rule well that um, i'm really glad you brought that up because i think it's um i think it's good practice to protect the field so I, don't, I, I wouldn't i wouldn't want to have our listeners take from that oh the player is the sole judge no you have an obligation because um, I would argue the other part of the side of this is if you're in, involved in a situation and you are uncomfortable with where a player is, uh, where they determined it last crossed the edge of a penalty area, then you should speak up. Right. You have that requirement to speak up. Mm-hmm. That is your job to protect the field. So I appreciate the point you're making, but I, I also think it's good practice for players to ask, what do you think? It's just, it's just good 
sportsmanship and to show, you know, and I think the, the motivation to ask that question, even though it's not a requirement in the rule, um, is kind of just confirmation. And you'd like to think yeah. they're operating on a, uh, wanting to do the right thing and not, you know, somehow bullying, mm-hmm. you know. I think players want to get it right. So right. I think, you know, when they're out there, they're, they're, and especially on the PGA Tour or at the level of what we're talking about with major championships, when there's cameras on and, you know, the world is watching, players really want to get it right. And that's why 10 out of 10 times when you see on tour in the majors, they call it official over. They have a referee. Right. Come watch them do this procedure. So I think players want to get it right. I just think that there's some people that have the... The point I'm trying to make across is that there's some people that just will refuse to move forward with the relief scenario until they can confirm what they're playing. The bottom line is this is an often violated rule. The truth is, is players are not um, 100% honest. They're trying to gain an advantage. It's meaningful distance. It, it's basically coming down to saving a stroke, uh, particularly at the, the highest level where it could be a level Y. It could be uh, in the general area versus a bunker. And there's all kinds of reasons why people will um, you know, not be 100% uh, honest. So, all right, that's, uh, let's move on. Cause this next one we want to talk about devote maybe the, the lion's share of our time to this is the U S open. And boy, this one is full of layers that we could talk about for probably an entire podcast, but we're going to, we're going to compress it into a, a fairly concise discussion. So this was Rory McIlroy. The last two involved Rory, um, U S open LA North, uh, final round, hole 14, his ball embedded. He ended up laying up on the par five, hit a wedge that embedded in the grass face above the bunker, greenside bunker. Um, the rules official involved was a member of the USA executive committee. That's something we can talk about. Um, and the rule was uh, applied. And ultimately, he was given relief for an embedded ball. Um there's so so the so question one just kind of recap. There's there's about four or five layers. One is who made the ruling, and the qualifications of that individual. Whether the ruling was correct or not, was it actually embedded, and what that means. And then applying, assuming it was applying the rule properly, and getting the the relief area accurate, and then ultimately what it led to and the outcome of the tournament. Ultimately. Um, it did not affect the ultimate winner. Um, you could argue that he ended up making a bogey on the hole. So let's take those in pieces. So let's start with the ball itself. Was the ball embedded? I have my opinion, which I'll, I'll hold back for just a minute. When a ball is in U.S. Open rough, I'm leading the witness here, this is you, and a ball is coming in with a wedge, so it's not a driver, it's coming in, you know, with the trajectory of a 120-yard shot, and it's landing uh, in a steep face, a U.S. Open rough, in order for the ball to embed, it needs to break the ground, not not very deeply in grass, but break the ground on a vertical face. Remember how gravity works? Gravity has a lot more effect, the G-force of a ball, when it's hitting on a flat surface than a vertical surface. So... Was that ball embedded, in your opinion? Oh, you left out one other piece of that was the, the firmness of LA Country Club. Yeah. So not only with the you know 
rough height, the firmness of the ground, and all the other things. But I don't. I mean, I, again, I wasn't there. Right. I, but but just based on the evidence, that's fun. We we can speculate. That's what we're here to do. I mean, so that's that's for for the sake. I'll, okay. I'll give it the benefit. But, but of the doubt. exactly, we're going to give it the benefit of the doubt. Um, so that was step one. Was the ball embedded? Uh, we're going to say yes. Now, I do not like this rule the way it's currently written, and I think we created a problem. And I can say we because I again was on the committee and had no vote, but nevertheless, I was a fly on the wall by giving by trying to standardize relief to one club length or club lengths instead of the actual spot. So this applies in a number of rules now. But now this is this is this is uh, not the first time. This happened with Victor Hovland at the PGA, uh, where he drove a ball with a five iron into a vertical face. Now that one, I think you could argue, well, it was embedded, or at least had a better chance of being embedded. But the point I'm making is you now get a club length. In the old days, before 2019, when your ball embedded in the general area, um, and again, I'll leave out closely mown because now it's general through, area. Through the green, if you're talking about Well, yeah, true, space. through the green then. But um, it had to, your relief point was right behind where the ball lies, period, full stop. You don't get a club length. If that were the case, now Rory would have been, would have been a very lengthy ruling, but he would not have been able to forget the fact they got the distance measurement wrong, but we'll get to that in a minute. But he was able to get to the top of the bunker and end up on a completely flat lie with a, a very straightforward, for U.S. Open standards, that was a really easy shot. So the outcome he got was incredibly generous for a very, very poor shot. For a tour player to miss his distance with a wedge, it was a terrible shot. And he ended up, and I was really concerned watching that play out for a number of reasons. But the rule itself was, was is frankly, to me, the, the biggest issue. I think we need to go back to the where the ball lies and not give them a club length. I think it's created this loophole that I don't like. We alluded to it when we talked about it back in the day, but what are your thoughts on the club length? Well, so I'll take that piece by piece with using the, going back to where you say, you know, he gets a very favorable mm -hmm. relief area from a poor shot. More so than just embedded ball, there's tons of rules, and I think in our in our rule book right now that could give someone a favorable relief area for a poor shot. Mm -hmm. Could hit it way off into the native grass and common ground, and be right next to a, a irrigation control box. Mm -hmm. And because of the club length, or because of that, how that relief for immovable obstructions is written, you could get a really favorable lie, or a really favorable. You get to drop in a really favorable area because of the relief area. So I think it's more it's more rules in in our rule book than just embedded ball that do that. Um, so that's the first piece of it. That's a very good point. The second piece of it is, I I think it's one it's a good thing that we've now kind of standardized relief areas and using certain reference points to get to those relief areas. I think before nineteen with our dropping procedure before the modernization, I think it was kind of all over the place a little bit. You know, when you were dropping from back on the line relief to lateral relief to unplayable ball relief, you know, using some of those procedures, embedded ball relief, I think a lot of those dropping procedures were all over the place and where you were dropping the ball. Mm -hmm. Again, you, you had a, a relief, it wasn't called a relief area before 19 with lateral relief, but you had a relief area. 
because of those two club lengths. But then you go to back on the line and you didn't really have a relief area. You were dropping close to a point where you measured. Mm-hmm. So I think the standardization of the relief area and using that for all of our relief rules, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, all, having it in all of those rules, I think, is a good thing. Yeah. No, those are good points. Uh, there, there is, like anything, it's a game of, of good and bad fortunes, and sometimes the rules help you, and sometimes they don't. Um, so that's a fair point. I, again, I just, I've seen it now happen enough on the PJ Tour, but my bigger grievance is let's really get the rule itself right. Was that ball embedded? And there's a wonderful diagram in the rule book that I think does as good a job as you can illustrating you know, I'm going to visualize it, illustrate it here. I'm holding up my hand to show the ground level. That ball where the, the, the actual shape of the ground has changed. Think of it as clay. Was the clay, did it did it change shape? And I don't think it did. I don't think that vertical face at all had changed shape. It was just really deep in the grass. That makes perfect sense. So that's the part that I really want. Okay, so that's the first part. Now let's talk about who made the ruling? So as I'm watching that, um, and I said this when it happened, I said, if I were her, Craig Winter came on and said, this is so-and-so, member of the USJ Executive Committee, I would have called for a backup. Not because I don't know the rule, but because I, as a rules official, an amateur rules official, I'm not a professional rules official. The, the professionals are the people who work for the tours, the LPGA, the PGA, the you know, the DP world, they, are, they do it every day. They get to know the players. They understand intimately. You get better at things that you do all the time, particularly when you're in the spotlight. I was so nervous when I worked U.S. Opens and the, and the Masters. I told myself, if I get into any situation that I'm uncomfortable with, I'm calling for help. And there's this sort of culture of, you know, you kind of have this fraternity um, and I, I don't mean to be sexist when I make that comment because there's many women uh, involved in rules officiating, but there's this, there's this culture of you don't want to show your ignorance. And when you get on the radio, I call it your Motorola rights instead of your Miranda rights. Uh, anything you say can and will be held against you in the tournament office. So you get on the radio and you say, I, I need help. That's an admit, you're admitting that you don't, you're not up to snuff or that you choked or you know, my position was, if I get the ruling perfect, nobody's going to give me an attaboy. They're going to go, yeah, that's a good, yeah, good for you. But if I get it wrong, I'm going to become famous in a bad way. A famous rules official is not a rules official you want to be. So as I was watching, I said, if I were her, I would call for help. Not because I couldn't get the ruling right, but because I just, you never know. And you get in that situation, it's pressure packed. You're talking about the U.S. Open. You're talking about the last few holes. You're talking about the greatest player in the world, probably of his generation, and Rory McIlroy. And you're going to get in there, and why take that chance? But it really shines the light on, and it's not the first time the USJ has had a black eye for having a ruling made by someone who's not, quote unquote, or not perceived as being an expert. And I can cite other examples, but this one I think was certainly it was an it was a black eye. The USJ had to come on. Uh, media later and say we blew it. And I just think that's unfortunate and could have been avoided. Well, it's a lot of good thoughts to put in my head as I'm preparing to work for the U.S. Amateur for the next yeah. couple of weeks. So yeah. that's a good, yeah. good, good night uh, or a good thing to put in the back of my head there. So, yeah, um, yeah I, 
again, even if you go back to where you're saying, you know, even if you know the rule 100%, embedded ball is a pretty simple relief procedure. Right. The, the, the reference point is super, it's easy to find, become easier to find even in the last couple of years, right. especially with the 2023 changes. The, the reference point is easy to find. Well, once you, and once you know the reference point, you're just measuring a relief area and having the player drop. And, when, and then you're just getting into well, the drop it, it, Okay, so now let's get into the mistake that was made. So indeed, this rules official made a mistake. And I was curious. We did this exact, exact scenario on one of our rules videos out of Common Ground. And it was, the timing was actually really good. I think that video came out. Right, but here's something really interesting. If you really, really, really want to split hairs. I, I used my club, my driver in that situation. So let's, 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 we'll get to that. So the mistake that was made is you ignore the vertical distance because this ball embedded, um, I'm sorry, you don't ignore the vertical distance. This ball embedded on a vertical face. The ruling, the measuring that was done erroneously was the measuring was done directly above where the ball embedded at the top of the bunker face, which was, I think it said 18 inches, which allowed that 18 inches more of flat land at the top for Rory to take a better stance and get a more favorable relief area. Um, and I understand kind of a blending of, because when your ball embeds in a tree, your relief area, you ignore that vertical distance. Uh, I, I would say it doesn't embed. No, I'm sorry. When your ball is, un- <laughs> my, my bad. When your ball is unplayable in a tree, and this is where I think the rules official was, their headspace was. I may be wrong, but I can. this is the kind of mistake that you can make under pressure. So you're thinking, well, we just ignore that vertical distance. The, the reference point when your ball is unplayable in a tree is on the ground directly below. So that 10 feet or whatever it may be is ignored. You don't start measuring from the, the branch of the tree and get your two club lengths, which may not even reach the ground. You go to the ground. So it's almost like, the, you know, in this situation, it's the opposite. We're going to go elevate, um, and, the, and the reference point is now, so we're going to ignore that vertical distance. That's not the case here. So that was the mistake that was made, was the measuring was not being done on the vertical face. So maybe you can clean up anything I might have misspoken about there. No, I think, I think you covered it. I also believe in the USGA's statement when they came out, and, you know, kind of the admission that, you know, this was – this was wrong or something. I forget what Thomas Thomas had the whole statement. I forget what he says, but in part of that statement, I think he did say that the ball did end up eventually in the right relief area. Mm-hmm. It's just that 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 measurements appeared to be done incorrectly. Right. So well, and, and and it goes back to another video we've done in the past with technical Tom and casual Carl. Yeah. With the measure with the measurements of relief yeah. areas. Yeah. There is. A little bit of casual Carl, possibly, in that. Uh... Yeah, a little bit. Well, a couple things on that. One, um, I, w- I would, all respect to Thomas, I, I, I don't know. We'd have to go out there and, and really dig in and, and study the geometry, the slopes, etc. My gut tells me that he gained an advantage. And the advantage was not necessarily the lie of his ball, but his stance. Because I think he would have been standing, likely standing on that face. Ultimately, he had a horrible chip and didn't matter. I mean, he, he didn't take advantage at all. He still made a bogey at a very costly time in the tournament. Yeah, the point I was going to make about the video we did, and, I, and I'm saying this in a self-deprecating way, because I, I absolutely 
I'm not saying I would have made that mistake that, that was made, but I there's a high prob there's a problem higher probability that somebody who doesn't do that every day is a little bit uncomfortable, and you don't do things when you're as well when you're nervous. And if you're not nervous in that situation, then you're not human. You know the camera's on. You know this is the championship coming to an end. What you know she was nervous when she made that ruling. When she's not, then I'm sorry. That's not I, so. When you're nervous, you're gonna probably not perform at your highest and your best. So, by going back to our video, when I measured, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> when I went, when I measured with the driver, I actually had the driver head go back and look at it because I was holding myself to the same standard. Turned. So I was measuring from the toe of the driver, not the shaft. So I gave myself an additional three or four inches, whatever the width of a driver head is, of incorrectness. Because I should have had the shaft down there. It's a straight line. It's not a, a club like this is not the, the shape of a club. It's the actual shaft, right? So even in our video, I got it wrong. Um, it just gained a little bit. And it's funny how your instincts just well, kind of... I would say you still got the ball in the right relief area, though, in the video. Uh, I think we could go out there and scrutinize it. I don't know. But it, my point is, even that, and you really start to split hairs, there, I, I was just being fair. I, we, I probably got it wrong as well. And you got it wrong because you were the official giving me the ruling. So let's be fair to the USGA and say that, hey, a lot less consequence with uh, our little rules video, but uh, our yeah. our afternoon at Common Ground was not the U.S. Open. No, and true. And you're not Rory, so. so so to kind of put a bow on this one, um, I think the real overarching question for and it's really timely because you look at what's going on in professional golf, men's professional golf, and you've got this stark delineation. It seems to be getting starker and starker. If that's a word between the PGA Tour week in, week out events, and the majors. So you have golf, professional men's golf, and you have the PGA Tour. You have obviously all kinds of craziness going on there. But then you have the majors, and the majors do not um, administer the rules the same way the PGA Tour does week in and week out. And what I'm saying is they do it better week in and week out because they get really good at it. And I have all the respect in the world for uh the, the men and women who are rules of professional rules officials. And we happen to have a couple of former CJ staff members in those roles. So it begs the question, what should be the bedside manner for the majors? And I've seen it, you know, you had a little bit difference. You know, the USGA used to have officials walking with the groups. Um, this is a little bit of a throwback, but in early 90s, uh, very notably, Trey Holland, who was one of the best rules people I've ever known, who was then president of the USGA, or soon to be, gave Ernie L's relief at Oakmont from a television crane that was, um, the status of that tele television crane was a temporary movable above, a TIO, up until the last group. And then after the last group, it became movable. It's kind of a weird little tweener. So Trey Holland gave Ernie L's relief for this TIO and later, it became known that that was not the correct ruling because he shouldn't. Have, he got out of jail. I mean, it was a terrible U.S. Open rough lie. He got out of jail. So what stood out was he ended up going on to win the tournament. Huge break. And Frank Hannigan, who was then working for Golf Digest and did some commentating for NBC, absolutely ripped the USGA on having amateurs make rulings 
in the majors, and it was time to turn it over to the professionals. Well, Frank Hanneken was a former USGA executive committee member, and, and or he was uh, their executive director. So this go this is not new. This is a this is an ongoing challenge. So it'll be interesting to see if this changes the way the USGA chooses to officiate. To me, that's really the, the takeaway here. At least for the Open Championships. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, anything else on that one before we move on to our final? So our final um, notable major, men's major ruling of the year um, came at the Open Championship. That was at uh, Royal Liverpool, Hoy Lake. Again, Roy McElroy, hole 18, round one, um, hit it in the greenside bunker. And again, avoid the appearance of evil. Twitter uh, lit up when it appeared as if his caddy might have been in a position where he was in the, uh, we'll call it the violation zone, violating rule 10.2B4. Did I get that right? I just pulled sure. that off the top of my head. No. <laughs> you, you did not pull that <laughs> Pulling off the top of your head. So anyway, so just, I'll give this one to you. Um, why was that? What are we talking about here? And why did Twitter light up? Well, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm a horrible golf fan. I didn't watch any of the Open Championship. Well, you had you were kind of busy. We had our own Open, yeah. Colorado Open, to be yeah. worrying about at that yeah. point. And getting ready for our stadium. A lot of other things to worry about. So, but I did, I am a frequent Twitter user, so I have seen all the photos of, and you know, Photos of people with their own drawn lines with from Rory back through the bunker and his caddy or you know, the aerial shot of the two of them and you know, people, anyone's interpretation of the restricted area or what they think the restricted area was for that situation. But this was and this is something we've seen over the years, time and time again. You know, nineteen when the rules modernized with this rule is kind of a big reaction from the LPGA tour with the issue they've had with the restricted zone with players and caddies standing behind while making a stroke. But yeah, with this whole rule, this is purely just because the, the game is a challenge that the player mostly has to overcome by themselves and they mostly have to get through around the golf with their own skills and their own abilities. They can have some help from, outs- from outside, well I say outside influences, but I'll, I'll I won't use that word because that means something else, but the only place a player usually can get help from is their caddy. And even with getting help from their caddy, even that stops at a certain extent. So without really just opening the floodgates for a player to get any sort of help that they want to have throughout a round, this rule is really to limit, to, to really put a stopping point. You can't, this is the threshold that that caddy can't cross. So, Again, possibly another one, we go back to the Peltier one, a very violated rule. Possibly this one as well, a very violated rule. You want to see some, a lot of violations of it? Go out to our state junior two weeks ago and watch all the caddies out there violated all the time. Yeah. Well, again, let's rewind the tape. Back prior to 2019, it had become pretty much standard operating procedure for every player, because I saw this firsthand in multiple women's opens, uh, for the caddy to stand behind her, his player or her player and line them up, have them take their stance, and then say, good, and then step aside. So it's almost like I used, you know, it's like winding up a, a wind-up toy and then letting go or pulling back an arrow and letting go. 
it just it just really looked awful, and it really violated this principle. Is like, come on, isn't that the golfer's responsibility? It's kind of like green reading, green reading material. You know, there there is this theme of there should be some skill involved in this, and there should it shouldn't just be, you know, wind it up or look at the look at the heat map and. So and really, as, as we just passed out eighty green yeah, material books in yeah, our state, and yeah, that yeah. had heat maps. In yeah, them. I noticed some of the players looking at them, so I guess they like them. That we'll leave that for another time. But um, the point is, it worked. We eliminated that behavior. It's gone. You don't see it anymore. But there's still this residual in the in the language, which is kind of a gotcha. And in my in my opinion, and I didn't go out and look at Twitter. I just glanced at a couple articles. I promise you that any viol- any location of Caddy and Rory was coincidental, um, was not for the purpose of lining him up. I mean, you're in a greenside bunker at the Open Championship. Alignment is probably the least of your concerns. Get it out. Is your <laughs> we care which direction you're going. So I just the, but there is still this carryover where it's kind of a gotcha. And it, when the when the rule first came out in 2019, there was some notable, painful rules. Penalties issued. There was, I mean, week one, yeah, twenty nineteen. Someone got it was Hao Tung Lee, and it cost him a tournament where he had his caddy, and it was on the green, and the caddy was there, and it was just so problematic because it was clearly. And if I'm not mistaken, a clarification for yes came out out the very next week. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's kind of what you'd expect when you make those kinds of changes. But the good news is behavior. Is, has been completely changed. Another example of behavior changing without changing a rule is the backstopping thing. That really appears to me that kind of been talking about advice and helping players and, and that, but the backstopping, which really bothered me because I, I happened to fall in the camp as a, as an observer of professional golf, that it was happening a lot where players were kind of complicit in agreeing to, you know, help each other by leaving balls in positions that could help. And that seems to be gone. So I don't know if it was just a, hey, cut it out statement in, you know, in the first tee or somehow in the player conduct. I don't know, but it's gone. So without necessarily changing the rule. But anyway, I think the good news here, I don't think Rory deserved a penalty, didn't get one. And the good news is I think we've cleaned up kind of a mess we had prior to this. Well, as much as the gotchas exist in that rule or, you know, rounds. The restricted area. The rule, I think, also has a statement in that kind of lets people off the hook with, you know, no, there's no penalty if someone's inadvertently right. in the restricted area. So if a cat is just standing there leaning on a rake looking off into the sunset while a player is, right. you know, hitting that bunker shot and he just happens to maybe be slightly in that, what we call it, the restricted area, mm-hmm. the, the the, penals, the players like to get penalized. Right. It's kind of a get off the hook because the caddy just wasn't paying attention or just was kind of... Or the caddy's hustling and, and grabbed it and is caught as the player's maybe just choosing yeah. to play more quickly. A lot of reasons. Yeah, yeah. But I... Two, yeah. two sides to it. So. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I think that's going to be a wrap. Another uh, spirit of the game in the books. Been fun chatting with you. We got a lot more golf to play. We're not done yet. Everybody thinks, oh, you got to be done with your season. And I always laugh... And say, uh, no. I think after the last couple of weeks, um, I was joking. After Chris and I were kind of cleaning up at Rain Dance yesterday, and I was saying my final goodbyes and thank yous and all that, he was kind of saying, oh, you know, we, you, know you guys got to get down here and yeah. play some golf. 
I was like, yeah, you know, once we start hitting the downs over the season, you know, we'll try and blah, 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 this. And I was kind of thinking on the way back home, God, let's just, let's just get to November. Can <laughs> I just jump to November or October? Right well, now? you know, because we get, we play a lot of tournaments in August and September and into October. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's harder to get sites. So sometimes we have to kind of push the ski, the season a little bit uh, later where they were not displacing, you know, their customers. So it, it's just, uh, and we take advantage of some great fall weather because let's be honest, it's the best time in a lot of ways to play golf. So keep up the good work out there and, uh, uh, we'll be back next month with another spirit of the game. So Ed May out. Okay. Lewis Harry, we'll see you next time. Okay. Good work. How long is that? I'm going to say 41 minutes.